Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you guys back with us after our our short hiatus, skipping a week due to due to travel logistics. And as you can see from Dan's video, Dan is still traveling, and we're going to try and work around that and hopefully get something worth listening to out to you guys today. But we yeah. are we are excited to be to be doing this with you guys again today. You know, it would be fantastic if if we had the means and opportunity to to sit down and chat every day and post content all the time we'd be able to cover a lot more of the a lot more of the the news coverage of things that go on that that should be addressed but we just don't have the time for because some of it is just so stupid but anyways (laughs) anyways it's just my thought going into this dan it's well it's true and it's a and it's a point that we're going to take up in this episode a little bit indirectly so so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to continue in this trend that we started last episode and we're going to talk about another podcast and and we've been thinking about this one for a while and we've been thinking about the reasons we're going to talk about it and and the reasons we're going to talk about it we're going to talk about after we talk about it which doesn't make any sense but just bear with us so we want to talk about Jordan Peterson uh Jordan Peterson is a is a fairly famous podcaster and lecturer um he rose to fame a few years ago. He put his lectures online while he was a professor at the University of Toronto. And and then in conjunction with this, and I can't remember the timeline exact, exactly. And, and yeah, Dan it's been is four or five years yeah. ago was when this went down. And uh, there he he opposed a bill that was considered in Canada, which required people to use preferred pronouns. And and he he opposed it because he did not believe in compelled speech. You know, he was very vocal about it. He said, hey, I'm happy to use whatever pronouns you would like. And that's what I do in my class. But I don't believe the government has a right to force me to use the pronouns. And of course, he got accused of a lot of things. He got accused a lot of, uh, you know, transphobia and a lot of other things, even though he was never he, he never he never did any of the things he was accused of. He was just opposed to compelled speech which is very understandable but but since then he's had a very a very famous and an outspoken career against some of these woke ideologies and has gone on he now has a podcast where he interviews people and talks about interesting things and for a while he was he was out of commission there were some health issues for for him and his family and and he's back quite recently and and doing the podcast and i for one have not been a longtime jordan peterson fan dan on the other hand has been going on about jordan <laughs> peterson for years and and finally got me a few months ago to start listening and and I can see why you were hooked, Dan. He is definitely an incredibly intelligent and engaging person to listen to, unquestionably. He is. There's a few interesting things in, in the facts that you were stating there. Um, for a long time, governments, even governments in Canada, which is where he's from, uh, have been restricting speech. And they restrict speech in, in the idea that you are not allowed to do certain things. You're not allowed to say certain things. They, could, they would fall under uh, different kinds of discrimination. In a lot of places now, they fall under what's considered hate crimes. But this is different. What he was arguing against was not necessarily the prohibition of particular words and phrases or in ideally in specific contexts. So they're not just, you're not just banning words, you're banning, you know, some kind of harm is the, is the idea at least behind them. But in this case, they were talking about forcing you to actually say some words, 
mm-hmm. as opposed to prohibiting you from saying certain words. And that is a, a different line. And for various reasons, uh, he'd studied, uh, spent a lot of time in his early years, especially studying things like uh, World War II, studying uh, Nazism and uh, Stalin and Mao and these other World War II figures where th- that shook the world in so many ways because of how evil they were and how people would go along with them and all these things. And he was looking into those. And, and one of the things that he noted was a, a political idea that once people begin to, I say political, right? he doesn't consider it political, but it has political implications. So once people begin to lie and to accept that kind of control and to uh, go along with those kind of things, there's a rapid spiral downward. And so he, his, his point was, I will not say those things. I believe that that would be wrong for me to go along with you. Even if on a personal level, someone could come to me and they could say, you know, I have some, some issues or whatever, or, or even not just say, I prefer these pronouns. And he would probably go along with them. He left the door open that maybe in some circumstances, perhaps if he felt like someone was just doing it as a game, you know, or some kind of manipulative thing that he wouldn't. But in practice, in real life, he indicated that he had always thus far gone along with them if someone had asked him to use certain pronouns. Mm-hmm. And by trade, in, in what kind of professor he is, he's a psychiatrist and has had a very successful practice in addition to teaching. And so he spent, you know, who knows how many hours sitting across from people having conversations about this kind of thing. And so it was interesting because, of course, the, the politics tried to make it entirely political. They tried to see it as a kind of homophobia, transphobia, and other things as he mm-hmm. uh, as he's brought up these points. But they were not. That's not what he's looking at. And it's not how he acts on an individual basis at all. It was a political principle about the government imposing certain things. And that's, that is a distinction that people will make in futility today. Yeah. <laughs> because nobody, nobody will let you make that distinction. There are no non-political ideas of importance. He is coming from outside of politics and he is looking at it at a psychological level and an individual moral level and seeing where this leads. And it has implications for psycho for politics, but it's not directly political and it is a principled point and it doesn't fit into the ideologies that are being used by all parties in Canada at this point. And, and so he is isolated and alone he's misinterpreted he's he he rise to fame despite his his uh desire to discuss other things than politics Mm -hmm. and despite his focus on other things and it's been a really interesting rise to fame i think at this point it's safe to say he is the most uh famous intellectual in the world for now um if not he's he's top three top three there are a few others that you could make the case for but he's He's arguably the yeah, he's arguably the most famous intellectual in the world and has several very successful books you probably heard of, 12 Rules for Life, followed by 12 More Rules for Life. <laughs> they have subtitles that give them a little more explanation, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you've ever heard Jordan Peterson, you were talking about what he's what he's like to listen to. It's interesting to hear people try and critique him. So they they look at what he's saying. They pull it into the political world they know. They have this, this ideology, this set of ideas about what it means for someone if someone says this they're transphobic if someone says mm-hmm. this they're 
liberal. If someone says this, they're conservative. If someone says this, they're racist. You know, you've got these, these boxes that we put people into based on uh, the vocabulary that they use and the way in which they, they express themselves. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is to see him walk so precisely through conversations with people trying to put him in boxes and to see them frustrated in their efforts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he often av- is able somewhat miraculously by, by just being remarkably precise and remarkably careful to avoid getting stuck in these boxes and often is able to trap people who are trying to trap him in his words in the, in a way that this, this comparison is going to upset people. But as far as historical comparisons go, this is the kind of thing Socrates was doing and also the kind of things that Jesus was doing in the Bible. He had the Pharisees with these word traps. They're trying to apply some kind of label. Mm-hmm. Jordan mm-hmm. Peterson is able to navigate through these and then often is able to, to ask them questions that confound them or turn the tables. No, I think it's a fair comparison. Uh, in practice, it is. I, ironically, though, people will, there is an almost cult-like following of Jordan Peterson at this point. Um, and to be, to be fair, I think that's probably a good thing because Jordan Peterson is very careful and mm-hmm. isn't some kind of demagogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will have, people familiar with him will have heard people, will have heard scientists try and critique his work. The problem is that Jordan Peterson primarily in his own mind is a scientist mm-hmm. and is extremely good with data, mm-hmm. extremely good with statistical analysis, extremely good with knowing the psychological literature and the things that he's talking about. And so people tried to, to make a big deal about him comparing, uh, discussing lobster, uh, the, the way a lobster's yeah, I don't lobster, even know the right term at all. I mean, it's, it's how lobsters socialize and interact and what the hierarchy right, right. of society in the lobster world is. I mean, it's right. social hierarchy is really what he's talking about. Right. He pointed out that you can give him antidepressants using the same active ingredients that you give people today, and it will calm them down. And so if when lobsters encounter each other, there are occasions where the males will fight for some kind of – for over a female or over territory. Um, often it's just posturing and – if that doesn't work, then it escalates and it can eventually culminate in, in some kind of, you know, fatal exchange, but that's, that's less frequent. But if you take a lobster that has engaged and lost and you give it antidepressants, it will re-engage. And people have tried to pick apart what he said on this in such detail. And it's amazing to watch. If you go and you listen to him very carefully, you have to listen to him extremely carefully because it's in the nuances that that he makes all of his points. They try to portray it as like, he's arguing that these antidepressants make lobsters more aggressive. And that's, mm-hmm. that's not what he's arguing. It makes them act more aggressively. It does the same thing emotionally in the, in a more basic form, of course, the nervous system of a, of a lobsters much more basic than ours. What it does is it calms them down. And once they're calmed down, they are then able to go re-engage. This doesn't make them more aggressive. And anyway, I've, I've seen countless hours of people misinterpreting his point and then saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. And they find the most obscure points because it's only on the obscure points that you have a chance of, of catching him. But most of the people critiquing him, you'll, you can go on YouTube and you'll find people like us talking about people all over the internet, right? And they have these critiques and often they get many likes. None of those critiques stick on Peterson. Most of the people are just not competent enough to, to critique him. 
He is whatever you may think of Jordan Peterson. He is one of the most precise and intelligent minds out there. And thus, even if you don't like him, he's someone you should listen to in the same way that even if you don't like Brett Weinstein, you should go and give him and Heather a a shot and, and take a look. You should give Jordan Peterson a shot. He's worth listening to. The man, you will become more knowledgeable and more intelligent just by listening to him and engaging with his ideas than even if you end up disagreeing with them. Which is which is itself a good reason to listen to him. But part of the reason we're talking about him, Dan, today is and maybe even the primary reason is because of what you were talking about, his ability to be precise when he speaks and the fact that he is not politically driven. He is not a political pundit. He is not a political thinker. He is not, you know, a political science student who's come into the world and is looking at politics. He's not he's not even even us, you know, who are who are amateur, you know, politically interested individuals who are or somewhat amateur who are reaching out and talking <laughs> about politics. That's that's not his goal at all. His goal is is to fix is to help people with the problems that they have, what whatever they are, you know what I mean? Whatever they are, and it's not about yeah. politics. And when he does talk about politics, he's able to combat the attempts that people make to drag him into the mud. Um, some of the interviews that made him especially famous early on, which you can find him on YouTube, you know, he gets interviewed by a couple of uh, British media companies, and you know, it's, and I can't remember the ex- the exact names, but these interviews there, and, and the primary topic is is feminism as well as some other things. You know, they bring up lobsters, and in these interviews, the people who are interviewing him keep trying to pull him into these political traps, and it's the same thing you see, like when we we discussed the debates, you know, last year. No, well, yeah, was it last year? Yeah, My it's, been, it's been. It's been like seven, seven months, eight months. Yeah, seven, eight months. My timeline got messy there for a second. I couldn't remember how long it had been, what year <laughs> yeah, it was. It's but anyway, it has it has been almost a year. Yeah, but it's been a year. but close. But you think about those debates, and with those debates, what happened is is people would throw accusations at each other, and then in response, people would just throw back more accusations, and they wouldn't actually ever talk about the accusation. They just flatly deny it or. Or sidestep and then throw more accusations. But that's not what Jordan Peterson does. What Jordan Peterson does is first he wants to understand what the accusation is. He's like, okay, you're saying I'm I'm sexist. Why am I being sexist based off of what I just said? Let's break this down. And he won't ever accept any claims made against him if he doesn't understand them or if he believes they're wrong until he understands exactly what's being said. And... And it makes for very difficult interviews, you know, because it's not just back and forth. It can be painful at times because so much of the political world today is just mudslinging and you don't expect expect people to grab the clump of mud and break it down and say, okay, what exactly are you saying that I am and why are you saying it? And so often people would misinterpret what he said intentionally in order to lump him into an area. And it's something that we do in politics almost subconsciously that I didn't realize until I listened to Jordan Peterson. And it's something that happens over and over and over again is you actually end up in politics accepting so much mudslinging. You accept and let things stick to you that you don't have to. 
And it was really interesting. It was really interesting. You know, for yeah. example, like they were talking about feminism and, and they would say something like, you know, how do you feel about the, the 70%, you know, pay gap? And then he would say something, he would say something like, I, I don't want to quote him because I don't have the exact words in front of me. And that defeats the whole point. You should watch the interviews to see what I'm talking about. Yeah, Kathy Newman is the most, most, the most famous, famous yeah. slash infamous one. Um, in that it demonstrates exactly what you were talking about in that how often politics is merely trying to apply a certain label. You're, yeah. you're looking you're to trying score to political put points. The, put mm -hmm. the other person in a box. Yes, yes. You're looking. And so Jordan Peterson will say something and she'll say, so you mean by that, that, and then she'll say and something then that basically it, means yeah. he's, he's, uh, uh, a sexist mm -hmm. basically. And he'd be like, no, what do you, you know, <laughs> this is what I meant by that. And I meant exactly that. And I said nothing more and nothing less than that. And often what he said, isn't making a political point that can then be adapted. And so she tries to, to fit it into another box. Right? She tries to, <laughs> she tries in various ways to, to pigeonhole him into these ideas. Um, and that's extraordinarily difficult to do with him because of his precision and because he actually is an independent thinker who has an original thinker who has combined ideas in a variety of ways. Um, yeah, and he, Dan, the, the way you said that was fantastic. The way I was saying it was was terrible before. <laughs> but basically, it's that in the political world, that's what I'm here for. I got everything you everything you think and say has to fit into some kind of category or easily acceptable idea or groups of ideas, mm -hmm. and that's how politics works. And so, whenever we discuss politics, we naturally put ourselves in one of those categories. You know what I mean? And and that's how everyone does it. Jordan yeah. Peterson, as someone who's apolitical, is so impressive because he's able to talk about it and actually talk about individual ideas and not end up putting himself in any of those boxes, which is so important because those boxes are never going to conform perfectly with what you actually believe. The world is not made up of boxes. The world is made up of individual issues and individual ideas. But right. that's something that we lose with politics time and time again. Right. The labels are useful uh, as shorthand. You, you don't want to always have to explain your position on a dozen issues before someone knows where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. And so we use labels as a kind of shorthand. Mm -hmm. and, and to that degree, stereotypes and labels are useful. They're useful to, to get you through a thought process quicker than you otherwise could have. The problem is they've become teams and they've become so tribal that the question is not really, what do you think? And how do I get there quickest using a variety of labels or shorthand tricks? If, if that's what's necessary, if you don't have the time to go through the details. The problem is that we're asking, are you the enemy or are you on my team? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really the what the question. problem is. And that's what Kathy Newman is trying to, to show. She's trying to demonstrate to her viewers that, that Jordan Peterson the enemy. is the enemy. She's trying to, yeah, and, and it's that simple. She's trying to find this the thing that will stick, that will show people that watch her that Jordan Peterson should not be listened to because he's a bad guy and he's playing for the other team, whatever that other team is in her head. And that's, that's most of politics. Like you look at interviews on news things and this is why, this is why they start yelling at each other. They've learned that defending themselves is almost useless because once the label's there, you have problems. And, and so what you do is you just sling mud back. And that's what the presidential debates were. And Jordan Peterson, the mud just doesn't stick. It's like that, it's like that child's book where they're sticking stars and dots on people. 
and it just doesn't stick. And the people who watch Jordan Peterson are way too interested in his actual ideas, not the team he's playing for. And so they end up not getting pulled into this argument. They end up being, they end up watching Kathy Newman's interview and being like, wow, Kathy, you're, you're kind of a jerk here. You're just, this is a disingenuous conversation. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen in politics. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, oh, see, this proves that Trump is the greatest. Or, oh, this proves that Biden's the greatest. And it's just so, so oversimplified. And and it's become more simplified in the last year. I'm, I'm at work, you know, as the CDC has changed their guidelines on, on COVID again, you know, they changed them and changed them again. I mean, they've been changing them for the past year and a half. And as those changes come in, the states change what they do and businesses change what they do. And as our businesses is making changes... You know, it brings up the COVID debate again, and a natural tendency that people have is to is to say, are you the enemy or are you on my side? And as someone who feels like I have a more, who really doesn't fit into either of those cookie cutter sides in terms of, of COVID and the vaccine, mm-hmm. I feel like there's no place for me here. There's no place for me to discuss for me to discuss the vaccine, it reminds me of, you know, like the Dark Horse podcast where they talk about it and they say, hey, we're trying to look at this seriously because we do care about this and figure it out. And they keep getting lumped into these groups. You know, they keep saying, okay, you're an anti-vaxxer. Okay, you're anti this and anti that. Oh, you don't care about COVID and all of these things because it's either you're with me or you're against me. And there's no there's no wiggle room for anything else. <laughs> if you're watching the video, you know that Brad probably went out of out of context of the speech, I'm, I'm in a tiny town in Idaho, and this was the best internet I could find. Uh, but it probably will still have some, a few hiccups. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, one of the, one of the interesting things about this is it, you might, you might look at people doing what Kathy Newman does in the interview, if you watch it or what, basically what most political figures do. And you go, wow, you guys are, you guys are terrible. This is either a moral flaw or sheer stupidity that they behave this way. It's not. It's not. I'm going to defend them for a moment, even though I think what they're doing is extremely destructive. What they're doing is the right call when you're at war. When you're at war, you need to know who is on your side. If your life is at stake, you need to know that the soldier next to you has your back. You need to know who's on your side and who isn't. And if everything is going to be decided by politics, you are at war. Mm -hmm. You are at war. You're trying to win so that you either get to impose your ideas on others or so that others' ideas are not imposed on you. And it it could be defensive or offensive, but whatever the case is, you can justify what you're doing by saying, yes, I'm being disingenuous to this person. I'm not treating them fairly in this conversation. I'm not honestly representing these ideas, but there is too much at stake. There is too much at stake to let me to, for me to allow Jordan Peterson to speak and to perhaps sway some people from the side that is right. Even if that side has problems, it's way Mm -hmm. better than the other side. And Mm -hmm. we can't let the other side win. And if you've accepted that warlike mentality that we must win, then you're going to probably be quite comfortable with the tribalism that's developed with the, it's our side or they're evil. Mm-hmm. You support mm-hmm. us or you're against us. And that leaves very little room for honest conversation. Like I said, I think that's, I think that's defensible 
in some circumstances, but it's extremely narrow circumstances. Like there's a guy with a gun in your house. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's an actual threat there, but we've accepted that at the level of politics for a while now. And I think we accept that automatically in some sense. I think that becomes the norm automatically. If you allow politics to make all of the important decisions, if your company's success depends on politics, if whether or not you have the money to survive depends on politics, if whether or not you have the opportunity to, to live as you see that you have to, or you need to depends on politics. If everything hinges on your side, winning elections, or you cannot be happy, you cannot be satisfied, you cannot live your your religion or your beliefs or what, whatever it may be, yeah, you can see how people get there. And that is so often where we're at. We look at politics and we're like, well, what, and, what, and isn't, what isn't political at this point? And yeah, what and as I was listening to you, as I was listening to you, Dan, that's what I kept thinking is if I were listening to this podcast, that's what I would say immediately is yeah. if anything we've seen in the last year and a half, that everything is political, that every aspect of our lives revolves around around politics. You know what I mean? I mean, my home life, my work life, you know, so much of of my everyday life today is decided you know, in Washington, D.C. or somewhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's... Whether you can leave your house or whether you are safe from someone carrying COVID. Yeah, exactly. You know, depending like these on are, which way you're pushing. These are, these are real... But either way, we're talking about serious everyday effects. These are not just... It's not even just come tax day. It's not whether or not the roads are going to get built. It's my normal everyday life is affected by politics. And... And COVID is really just there to illustrate how much of the rest of my life is affected by politics that I don't normally think about. But this last year and a half has brought that to my attention. That, I think, would be the response that most normal people would say is – and I think that's part of why people are taking such a warlike stance in this past year and a half and why it's become so hostile is because like this is the world, this is everything, and so this is a state of war because we are diametrically opposed. Whether it's COVID or something else, you know, whether it's defunding the police versus back the blue or any of these other issues that have gotten a lot of attention lately, it feels like there's no middle ground and there's no compromise. Right. And we, so, what do you do? Yes, the the term people use is a culture war. Um. And the culture war is really a mask for what, what I think is rightfully considered a, a political war that just isn't being, you know, a political war as opposed to a civil war, but it's, it's along the same lines. It just isn't violent. Mm -hmm. It isn't violent in most places. I mean, in some places it actually is violent and it's growing increasingly violent. Um, I, I want to jump back to Jordan Peterson to explore this a little bit because I think Despite what it appears like, despite the things we just laid out, how much is at stake in politics, why that puts you in a warlike mentality and, and how that gets you to the kind of place we are now politically and socially in the world. I think Jordan Peterson is fundamentally right at this point. And it's a, it's a point that he, that his ideas and ours are in alignment in some sense. Jordan Peterson began his studies by looking at politics. He actually, he joined a, a, some socialist group in Canada when he was young. 
uh, I think when he was doing his undergraduate studies or around that time. And he got interested. He was interested in politics. He was interested in getting involved politically. And he concluded that politics could not solve the problems that the world primarily needed solved. That politics could not come in and do anything that would change your life in such a way that you could deal with it and be satisfied with your life and, and find some meaning in your existence. And so he began to study psychology and get into the, begin to work on the ideas uh, through Jungian psychology and other things. If you listen to him talk and you're expecting normal psychology, you're in for a, <laughs> you're in for a rude awakening. He is anything but a standard psychologist or psych or psychiatrist. But, uh, but I think he is on that point. Jordan Peterson is absolutely right. And I'm convinced that despite what we just said, if you will reflect for a moment, if you're listening to this, if you reflect for a moment, you will find that the things in your life that bring you satisfaction and joy, the things that give your life meaning, the, the, the work that you do or the, you know, the fun that you have, the relationships you have are all entirely outside of politics. Politics may be able to come in and crush them in the worst of circumstances, a, a true tyranny and things like that. But right now, the things that fuel my life are not political. Mm -hmm. They're almost always some kind of relationship or some kind of work where I've found something that I love to do and a way to, to do it in a way that affects other people like this. Unfortunately, my, <laughs> unfortunately, my talking politics is, is one of those things for me. Um, and that is where we are, we are morally struggling. People today, uh, Jordan Peterson draws on Nietzsche and the postmodernists in their critique. Nietzsche, whether you define him as postmodern or not, he's the modernist, postmodern. But their critique of things like Christianity and society, some people don't take nearly seriously enough. Jordan Peterson takes them extremely seriously and tries to answer those questions. He's trying to find a way for an individual person in this world, as we see it, political and everything, to find a life that's satisfying and that could mean something, could satisfy, could be worth the intense suffering and struggle that is life. And he makes two moral points. One of them is that he makes many moral points, but two that I want to highlight here. One of them is that life is hard. Too often we look to politics to save us because we think life isn't a struggle or we think that the struggle is such that other if other people just change their behavior it will be better and that's true to some degree obviously other people cause some of the problems in our life but you can't control other people you can try through politics and you'll find that the solutions are unsatisfying to say the least if you did i'm i could guarantee that any any kind of test that allowed you to measure happiness, even if it was just opinion polls, would find that happiness is not rapidly increasing as different political victories happen, right? That there's, there's a, certainly under a tyranny, happiness is going to be crushed to some degree. There's going to be less satisfaction is where there's less freedom and prosperity. No, and but, I think, I think we need to pause there for a second in it and make it clear that, that what Jordan Peterson is saying is that life is intrinsically hard, that it's yeah. not hard because of, of, of I mean, it, it is hard and maybe harder because of particular circumstances, but life generally is hard. And 
And I think that's something that people people tend to not believe. I know if you ask conservatives, they would say life is hard because, you know, those darn liberals have changed things. <laughs> and back in the 60s, life wasn't hard, you know, and then liberals would turn around and say the same thing, you know, that that conservatives have put in these things that make make it so that life is hard and might point to another time, may even point to, you know, these uh these democratic socialist utopias over in Europe and say over there life's not hard but here we make it hard for ourselves and both of these groups are kidding themselves you can go to those socialist utopias you can go and you can read up about the the 60s and the 50s and that you know the glorious american economy and life was still incredibly hard and people still struggled. And that is a universal characteristic of life. And that is what Jordan Peterson is arguing is that, is that life is just hard and trying to pass that off as someone else's fault or some other social construct or something like that is just, it's misdiagnosing at least the majority of the reality. Right. I, most people would assume, I think, uh, whether, whether consciously or not, that, that Elon Musk's life is better than theirs. And that if they were to trade places with Elon Musk, they would be happy. I don't think that's true. I don't believe that for a second. Because most of the things in life that provide satisfaction are not merely things you can pay for. It's just not. And we are so focused on material things so focused on on the things that will make our life easier things like being able to hire a maid to clean your house mm -hmm. i would love that <laughs> i would i would absolutely love that it and it might make some things more convenient it might give me more time to do certain things it will not make me happy it will not add meaning to a meaningless life it will not take someone who is really truly miserable and make them not miserable. The things that have the power to do that in your life are beyond the scope of what, of what materials can buy, what economics can provide for you in almost all circumstances. If there's someone who's, you know, starving or whatever, someone who's really on the verge, uh, perhaps it will provide some slight benefit. But we know this and you know this because you can go and you can read about people from periods that were so much more poor than we are that there's no comparison. You can look in the world today, in fact. People don't appreciate in America as they're talking about how we need to help the poor in America, that even the poor in America are among the top 1% in the world. And if, and so the, the poor in America are actually some of the richest people that have ever lived in the history of the world. And if that, and if that can't satisfy them, you know, if that can't provide satisfaction, where were people finding satisfaction and joy and, and, and meaning in their life? for thousands and thousands of years. You can mm -hmm. read about them. They did. They did. It's a, it's a challenge, I think, to an, to an ethical, to a variety of moral assumptions that we make today that we, that we don't question enough. There's, a, there's another, forgive me for rambling a little bit, all these, all these individual things tie together to highlight that there's something wrong with our culture. There's something wrong with that. We're looking in the wrong places for solutions to our problems. Mm -hmm. Japan right now, if you didn't know this, Japan right now will pay you and give you a free house. If you will go move to the areas where there are many houses that have been abandoned, 
Why have the houses been abandoned? There are something like seven or eight million, I believe was the number last I checked. Houses in Japan. No one's living in. So many people would love to get a house. Japan has millions of empty houses. Why? Why? They're not having children and they don't have, they're not in the location where they're getting immigrants like places like France mm -hmm. are. Why? What kind of culture has been accepted that it's so good that there's no place in it for children? That there's no place in it for humanity to continue. We've solved so many of humanity's problems that humanity has decided it isn't worth continuing. If that, if that doesn't shake you, what, it's possible that the mankind eventually goes extinct because it just doesn't have children. That, how? Which, <laughs> which, you know, just speaking from, from an evolutionary perspective, Dan, I'm, I for one am not even a little bit worried about that because, because as these cultures, because there are many cultures, it's not just Japan right. that have naturally reduced, uh, their their population growth rate or maintaining rate you know they're they're actually declining right they've been negative for a long time there are many cultures and societies where the exact opposite is happening you can look yes. at you can look at european countries where it is you know there's a demographic line where where the native the native people of France are not reproducing, but the immigrants who have immigrated from the Middle East and other areas are reproducing and so and so there's a natural evolutionary result of that which is that the the cultures and societies that don't yeah. reproduce will disappear just inevitably right it's a it's a competition in some sense that that if your comp if your ideas are not fit for life if they're not enough to make something out of life and and to extend it and to fight for it and to continue it then your ideas will eventually lose no, and I mean, that that's, I mean, that's why historically, it's at least one reason historically why Christianity has done so well, because it's a, it's mm -hmm. a culture that's built on having lots of children and hard work. And you combine those two things in a culture, and that culture and that society tends to do quite well. Right, right. It's, it's interesting. And now, now uh, uh, the Muslim populations tend to have a lot of children, and through that are expanding to other areas, but it's but they're having a hard time competing in other areas like technology because of, well, a variety of reasons that, uh, we won't go into here, but, but it, it's all of this says to me, uh, is, is we look at Brad and I's, Brad and I's ideas about politics tend to exclude vast areas of, of, uh, everything. of life, <laughs> of everything. Right. Right. From politics, we say this is not a political issue and it should be solved by people working on these problems in other ways. This should not be solved through the force that is politics. It's, it's immoral and it's ineffective. And people today don't want that answer. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the burden is on us. It's on me and Brad and other people who think like us to explain if our ideas are right, why aren't they popular? If what we are proposing would make us more prosperous and more happy, why aren't they popular? Why is it that the pressure always seems to go the other way? Why is it that cultures push against freedom so hard? Why is it that governments 
consume more and more of economic exchanges and even social interactions to the point where they're, they've been coordinating with Facebook to some degree on who's being banned and things. There's some kind of collusion there. Mm-hmm. And, and the answer is really simple, is that as people have more and more realized the power that the political world has, is they expect political philosophies philosophies, excuse me, to be complete world philosophies, worldviews, how you answer everything. They expect political philosophies to answer the really hard questions about what is important in life and what matters and what should be protected and what should be preserved and what should be cut aside. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about these these shelves of books that I have, and and right now the books right behind me, most of them are most of them are nonfiction. You know, they are talking about serious issues, but I've got another two rows up above me and a row beneath me, and and several shelves in the other room that are full of of fiction books that are not talking about anything even close to politics that have nothing at all to do with politics that are incredible and that bring me so much joy and have so much value which is really our answer to that to that that idea which is that a political philosophy that answers everything is my worst nightmare. A political philosophy that is a worldview is the worst thing you could possibly want because every time there's a political philosophy, it's not going to agree with you completely. And so if that political philosophy is an entire worldview, that means that every area where you disagree, it's going to result in in pain for you. It's going to result in right. loss of loss of enjoyment. Um, right. You better hope your ideas win. Yeah, it's something. If not, you're going to be imposed on. Like there's there's a couple examples here in the state of Utah that I that I that I love to to bring up because Utah is a has a large population of uh, members of the Church Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and that has a strong effect on the politics. When half of a state is one particular religion, that has a large effect, and it just so happens that the majority of members of that religion are conservative, very conservative, right. which means that Utah is a very conservative state. Yep. We've got super majorities in in both both member both bodies of the Congress, and we've got a House and Senate conservative yeah. conservative governor, which means that the conservatives win, and those conservatives are largely influenced by the moral beliefs of this religion. And one of those beliefs involves alcohol. You know, the church doesn't believe in alcohol consumption, and which means that the majority of Utah doesn't drink alcohol, which is very unusual. Me personally, I don't drink alcohol. I have no interest in it, right? Well, what's happened in the state of Utah is we said, okay, well, we know what we think is good, which is to not drink alcohol. And we know what we think is bad, which is alcohol. So what we're going to do is we're going to do basically everything that's reasonably within our power to stop people from drinking alcohol in the state of Utah. So what they've done is you have to buy any hard liquor. You have to get at a state liquor store. They've increased the taxes on it. For a while, they actually lowered the alcohol content in the beers that you could buy at a gas station. And then... And then they did things with restaurants where they had to put up a curtain between where the alcohol was and where the patrons were so that we didn't see the alcohol and things like this. And 
And this is exactly what it looks like when someone takes their whole worldview and puts it into a political philosophy. Because I don't drink alcohol, but it doesn't mean that you have no right to drink alcohol. And so what I do with my political philosophy is I say, whether or not I drink alcohol really has nothing to do with politics. It goes back to Jordan Peterson. It has to do with how we want to live our lives. You know, what is the best thing for me and the best thing for you? And then the only time politics should get involved is when there's an actual legitimate need to use force in order to protect against force or the threat of force. And the Zion curtain, you know, that that curtain <laughs> put up between the alcohol and the patrons in a yeah, private a, business being required to have that doesn't do that. The state liquor a, stores doesn't do that. People should be able to buy alcohol at Costco. There's no sound political reason why they can't. The reason is a cultural one and it doesn't make sense. Right. And, it, and it's just it's just one small extension, but really, if 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 people had their way, there would be so much more than that. And that's what both sides are pushing for is more and more things like that. They want to fight the culture war on a political level with legislation. Right. right. I one of the reasons that we we bring up this episode, one of the reasons we're having this conversation at all, is because Brad and I have many convictions and opinions about what would be good for you in living your life. Mm -hmm. I, have, I have a lot of friends, we have a lot of different uh, lifestyles and a lot of different, uh, you know, opinions on what, how they should deal with different challenges in life. And I'm convinced that I have a lot of things that I understand well, and that would be, that's, that's basically good advice for them, right? And I try to help people, you know, not be the nosy person telling everyone what to do, but, but try and, uh, you know, live my life in a way where the people around me are happy, where, where I, in a way that I find satisfying in a way that doesn't harm anybody and offers a lot of benefit to people. And none of that has anything to do with my political theory. None of it does. There is no overlap at all between what I think politics should do and how I think you should live your life with the one exception of the use of force because mm -hmm. politics is characterized by how in what cases should we force people to do something in yeah. what cases is it all right to harm someone as long as government isn't voluntary it's an institution of right. force right so we we get asked questions by people like what do you think about uh about the sexuality in politics you've got these the transgender issues you've got these uh issues around gay marriage and things from some years ago and the, and the continuing uh, politics around that and, and discrimination laws and such. And there is almost no overlap between our political theory and those questions because we're not <laughs> looking to impose one way or another on anybody. And that puts us in some ways that sidelines us in a difficult way because people who are listening to politics the kind of people that we want, want you to talk to, have to an answer. want me to be able to answer that question. Right, right, exactly. Preferably people, in a yes or no manner. <laughs> yes, I can imagine so many people who might stumble upon our podcast and go, they don't talk about any of the things that are important to me and walk away because they're not happy 
they're not satisfied with their life. They're looking for to make their life better, and we're not offering that. It, or at least it appears so, right? It, it looks like we're not offering. Yeah, we're only we're not offering it in one in one sliver. Right. One sliver of your life. One aspect. <laughs> in one sliver of your life. And as we do podcasts, we probably will talk about a lot of those things. We probably will give our two bits on a variety of issues. We will mention Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> Beyond the scope of politics. But it's odd because our political idea does not answer those questions for you. It won't. And and it shouldn't. And it shouldn't. And it's it so shouldn't. destructive when it does. It is so destructive. If you can't see that that puts you in competition with other people on how to live their lives and thus makes it a zero-sum game where everybody must live their life a particular within, within a particular ideology, whichever one happens to win on that issue. If you can't see how that pits us against each other in a way that's extremely unhealthy, I don't think the fundamental problem I think <laughs> that was exactly the opposite of what I meant to say. I think the <laughs> fundamental problem with the way we, with the culture war is that it has all become political. We could talk about these things. We really could, but we can't talk about them if the only thing that matters is who gets the votes and who gets to impose on the other person. We can't talk about them that way. That's a war. That's a war. I want no part in that war. I want no part in it. Other than to say, stay away. You know, other than to be just defensive, purely defensive. And you mentioned you mentioned the Zion curtain. That's that's the particular part of the Utah law code. It's been that's its nickname, mm -hmm. jokingly, uh, because they've they force restaurants to put up a wall behind which all the alcoholic drinks must be mixed. So in the restaurants that are serving alcohol, you have to mix the drinks out of sight, because apparently. Because you know, children would look at it, or family, it, yeah. could, a family could see it, right? It's an entirely arbitrary uh, <laughs> law that has. Anyway, anyway, conservatives don't realize that they 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 look right now at the culture war and they go, "Wow, liberals really want to impose things on us." They do not realize how often they have imposed on other people. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. do not realize that gay marriage. In large part, the debate around gay marriage had nothing to do with marriage. There were often conservatives were defending things like the definition of marriage, the institution of marriage. They were worried about it. It was about a tax status. Mm -hmm. It was about money. It really was. Underneath, yeah, I underneath mean, it's, it, it's money, and there are other legal aspects to being other in legal a union aspects, that yes. governments recognize right. that it's all predicated on. Right. Conservatives created that problem. The problem of gay marriage, as as they if if you were one of those conservatives who who believe that that gay marriage should have never been legalized because it means the institution means something, which was a religious argument we heard a lot. Um, the problem was that at some point, conservatives said, we believe that people should be married. We believe that's the best way. And we're going to provide a series of legal benefits mm -hmm. to the institution of marriage in order to persuade people to behave in the way that we want them to behave. Yeah. And they brought it into the political world. They, they made it a political institution. Right. If it had never been a political institution, the debate would have never happened the way that it did. Right. Initially, marriage licensing was in large part created to prevent whites and blacks from marrying. Before, there was no – if you if – you, you're curious. Before this you may just, shock you some just, people. Right. It, it, you would be considered married if you were living together. 
Like that was that was often it. Yeah, and, and even without a religious government, ceremony. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and if there are far more problems than just those that have been created by conservatives imposing their values, things that they thought people should be doing on mm-hmm. liberals, and then when they when it comes back to bite them, they often have no idea because it's been in place for so long. It's just the norm. They have no idea that they were the ones who made this political. They were the ones who said, we're going to impose this. We're the ones that are going to subsidize this. We're the ones that are going to favor this. And thus created the battleground later for other people who are like, we want the same benefits. Why Mm -hmm. do we not get those favors? Mm -hmm. Why do you get special treatment? Right? And you can see how that's somewhere in there is something that the conservatives have missed that is of critical importance to how these problems came about. It's not that America necessarily that America is moving away from them. Perhaps it's that perhaps in so many cases, in some cases, they are creating these problems. They are creating battlegrounds by bringing things into the realm of politics. And then, and then it comes back to haunt them because other people want in on that. They've provided favors for a few and the many want those favors. And why not? If it's just a matter of, well, we're going to favor the things that we like, then let's, you know, that, that opens the door for everybody to come in and try and get a piece. Well, and, and, and speaking about why they are, why we're here where we are. And I think about the fact that so many of conservative ideals, so many of conservative culture is based on how things have been in the past, right? Right. How America used to be. And that meant that for a long period of time, they were that was the dominant culture you know what i mean the I, the dominant i believe was that marriage was between a man and a woman and was nothing else and as long as it was that way then conservative culture and the actual laws lined up and so conservatives were just fine forcing people who disagreed with them to conform you know what i mean conservatives have always been fine with that i mean you can go back through time and and yeah. and those in power have always been okay forcing their will on others even though it doesn't they don't see it that way and it's right. it's always obfuscated through the instrument of government right. but the fact of the matter is is that now part of the reason conservatives are so scared it's because they're realizing that large chunks of the population large chunks no longer agree with that culture and instead of doing the logical thing which is to say hey Half of the country wants this culture and half of this country wants the other culture, which is an oversimplification by far. Right. But but even if it were just that simple, you know, the logical the logical solution is, well, what if we remove those cultural aspects from government? You know, what if we had that stop being a government issue? That way we can both live how we want to live. The conservatives have doubled down and said, no, now we need more political rules we need more legislation in order to protect our culture and the only way they're going to win that is if their culture is the dominant one and at that point you're just rolling the dice about whether or not you're going to win that race instead of realizing that there is no need for legislation 
for every aspect of life. There is no need for your political philosophy to be a complete worldview. And this is why people with more libertarian mindsets are so often dismissed as radicals or as nut jobs or as people who aren't really in the political world, because in many ways they aren't because they are ignoring, not even ignoring, but refusing to bring so many aspects of life into the political arena. Yes. Yes. It makes it people who are so used to the normal political theories that are all consuming, as you were saying, that, that are an entire worldview, must look at the lines that we are trying to draw and be like, you know, that prevents so much good from happening. I hope in this episode they get some sense of the evil it also prevents. Maybe maybe in some way it prevents some progress from happening as, as they see it. I would argue those points, but look at what it's doing to make everything political look at the way look at the way that both parties are trending more and more towards authoritarianism they want a strong man they need someone who can win they need someone who can who can protect them and fight for them and and intentionally or not impose on the other people their ideas that is i can't imagine a worse trend it's the kind of thing that Jordan Peterson looked at and said, the problem here is not politics. The problem here is at an individual level and it's at the moral level. And I need to find a way to instill the kind of courage and ideas necessary so that people never get to that point. We're at that point. And, and, and the crazy thing is, is when you say that, you know, I need to instill these ideas, most people would say yes. And we do that through government action. And we do that through government action. And that's not, that's not the approach that Jordan Peterson took because he realized how ineffective that is, you know, after studying it. And you can see how incredibly effective he is with his books, right. with his lectures, with his podcast, and the number of people whose lives have been changed because of Jordan Peterson without any political action. Right. Right. We underestimate so much. People go, well, okay, you take politics off the table. Well, how, how are we going to change the important things? Right. That's the sense you get. They actually, actually the real thing, really what you get is, well, then that'll never change. Mm -hmm, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Then, then we're stuck. Is the only here. way. Politics is the only way. It's, uh, I, I never forget sitting in a high school class. It was a high school government class and someone proposed a problem and, and they said, well, what's the solution? And, Every kid in the class began their, and it was an open discussion. It was actually a good discussion, remarkably good for the time looking back. Good, good for the teacher and letting a, a discussion actually happen. But every, everything was, well, the government could, and then the next person say, or the government could, or the government could, or the government mm -hmm. could. And even then I happened to be, apparently I was born the way I am. <laughs> no, not, not true. But then uh, that was when I was reading Bastier for the first time. And, and yeah, then, even then it ideas. struck me, it struck me as wrong that every sentence began that way. Or maybe you could, maybe you could, maybe you could make the lives of the people around you better. Mm -hmm. And maybe you should. Mm -hmm. And maybe, and maybe by acting like government's the only thing that could do that, maybe you're making things worse. I'd be willing to bet money on it. I'd be willing to bet money that you're making it worse. Maybe the time you spent listening to politics, you could go and, and do something for your neighbors. 
Don't do that. Neighbors are weird. I'm, I am a millennial. I don't believe in neighbors. My neighbors are, <laughs> my neighbors are whoever I decide to associate with online and across distance. Go oh, do something so nice. so much truth to that. Go do something nice for them. Whatever, whatever it is. Uh, I think my parents would be embarrassed by the fact, by how poorly I know my neighbors these days, even though I've lived in the same place for like three or four years now. Mm hmm. But the point is that you could, you could be doing something that made people's lives better. You could be doing it. It could, and it could make their lives better. And it would be marvelous for you and for them. And if you were waiting for politics, if you were depending on politics, if you were, if you were waiting for the solution when those darn conservatives just get out of the way or those darn liberals just learn some common sense. Mm hmm. You've set yourself up for failure. You've wasted your, your potential to change the world in a way that at best means you're imposing on so many people and they hate you for it. And you may do some good and you're definitely doing some evil. Or you could go and you could do the thing that you feel like needs to be done. You could get the people together and talk to them. You, know, you could, you could begin, you're worried about racism. You could start holding meetings, just people you know. You, know, you could start Facebook groups. You can do, you can do a thousand things. They don't all have to aim at politics. I know exactly what would happen. People do start those groups, right? And they go, "How do we get votes for this? Here's the initiative that this." Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. It's it all ends up being political every freaking time. <laughs> it's tiresome. It's it, it's wearing society out. It really is. It's it's destroying relationships. When surely the best means of spreading good ideas is to build relationships. I think of, uh, there's a certain set of ideas that I ascribe to kind of a moral code per se, uh, drawn from, uh, like Brad, I'm LDS, um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, there's, a set of ideas, there's a point in, in LDS doctrine. This is what you came for, I know. Uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> a point everyone that, points out, that points out you should not try and, and maintain authority and power by mere, you should not try and maintain power by mere authority. Your position, your rank, your whatever it may be, in whatever organization, I think this is a universally applicable rule. That's a good way to breed resentment. If you're always pulling out your rank, you know, you're always like, well, you should do what I said because I'm your boss. Mm -hmm. or I'm mm -hmm. your dad or I'm mm -hmm. your, you know, whatever it may be. That's, that's not a good way to maintain power and influence in a good way. That's a good way to, to lose support and to alienate people. But you've got lots of other options. You can persuade people. You can, you can share knowledge with people, right? You can be kind to people and treat them with a, with gentleness and meekness. You can love them. And if you don't fake that, right, if you're not being a hypocrite, Mm -hmm. Those things change people mm -hmm. and they make your life meaningful. If you're not trying to manipulate people and deceive them, those kind of things help. And at times, maybe even you have to chastise people. You have to you know, come down on people who've made mistakes. But, but when you do that, you show love to them afterward. You treat them better afterward. You make it clear that it's not them. It's that this thing was, was wrong or that there's just you know, some small thing. And you can, yeah. you can separate that from that. And, and basically how I translate that, Dan, is that 
is that you can be strong and powerful and effective in this world. And in fact, you most often will be when you act through persuasion and love towards those around you. And that is the truly most effective way to accomplish anything. And it is definitely the only just way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a that can fill the gap that our political theory, which is in so many ways an anti theory, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, our, our arguments are often against the virtually every political philosophy. Yeah. Our, Cause our answer more often than not is does this, does this function, does this law, ju- does this Zion curtain need to be a government, government action or can it be given back to the people? Because more often than not, the answer is, you know what? People can decide which restaurants they would like to go to and whether or not those restaurants have a wall between the alcohol and the customers. Whether or not you have kids, you make – I mean, you can talk to families outside of Utah and and the horrible experiences they had where they went to a restaurant and saw the alcohol being mixed. No, but seriously, where where (laughs) they make their choices for themselves on what they think is best for their family. And that's – and that's what we're striving towards is allowing people to have as many of those opportunities as possible instead of going to government where there can only be one solution and only one answer to a problem that always has thousands of answers and thousands of solutions for the many, many different people, even here in the United States, let alone around the world. Right. And if you're looking to politics and you find yourself deeply dissatisfied with life, look elsewhere. It will not fill that hole in your life. It won't. It can't. Even if you won every political battle, you would find that that doesn't change it. You'd find that that if you are happy in this life, it will be in spite of politics. It won't be because of it. If you are satisfied, if you have the relationships that matter, if you can find people who will support and care for you and you can support and care for them, that will be in spite of politics, not because of it. And spend your time there rather than pushing so many, so many of <laughs> Some days I just wonder how many how many of the problems that politics is attempting to address could have been solved if the time spent attempting to address them through politics had been used to actually, actually addressing the problem, actually addressing the problem. And the market, so many people hate the market, but the market is the way in which you can address that and everybody benefits. You know, everybody who participates benefits, uh, whether it be through the product or through selling the product or through uh, other people having the product. You, it, it's a way that allows us to cooperate rather than to compete. People think of market competition all the time. The market is the place of cooperation. You are competing with a very few people and you're competing to cooperate. That's what businesses want. They want to be Mm. the best cooperator so that customers want to cooperate with them. They want to deal with them. Politics doesn't do that. Politics is a zero-sum game. It's it's the place where you don't go to cooperate, which is this weird mindset we have about politics. It's the place- It's the place you go to win at the expense of everybody else, at the expense of the people you're opposing. And that, that game will lead to destruction. It, it can't not lead to destruction. At best, it will lead to you being the one on top for a time. And that, and that will not fill the holes in your life. And yet that's where we spend so much time. That's why we need an anti-theory. That's why we need a, a political theory that says, this is not politics, this is not politics, this is not politics. And that's why we need people like Jordan Peterson, 
yeah. whose focus is not politics, but is on finding out what the issues are and addressing them directly. Not appealing yeah. to your legislator, but actually di directly yeah. dealing with the issues that you face. I mean, if you read Jordan Peterson's stuff, if you listen to him, that's what he talks about is, you know, is life is hard. And so you need to face life directly and deal with it. And he right. tries to find ways to help you to do that. Right. He tries to instill courage and and honesty and integrity and other things that he believes will lead you to act in a way that will lead to satisfaction. It's not a it's a it's a very practical moral theory. He draws it as an emergent theory from your interactions with the world. Uh Politics, we limit politics to one virtue, and it's justice. It's, it's, it's where is force necessary, and how should it be applied? So much of life does not fit into that box. Yeah, so much. So, so much. And the rest of that is stuff you can find, and you can solve, and you can work at. Don't make the mistake of trying to do it through politics. It will not do it. Where does that leave us, Brad? that leaves us at the end thank you guys so much for listening i hope this episode has been as enjoyable for you guys as it's been for us and we'll talk to you all soon take care this has been an episode of rethinking politics you can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on youtube you can reach out to us at rethinking politics podcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.